0: Is better now. That's all you can say. Welcome to the Blog the Dogs podcast. I'm Herschel Gurley here, as always, with my co host, Boss Dog, Boss Bark at the People.
1: Welcome back, everyone. Today, we are really excited to have former UGA quarterback Hudson Mason. Hudson was the starter for the 2014 season, um, very interesting season in UGA lore, so we were more than excited to have him on the podcast with us.
0: Yeah, we were jacked up to talk to Hudson, and he was awesome, uh, shared a lot of great insight and stories with us. If y'all can, please make sure and follow him on Twitter. His Twitter handle is H. Mason 14 at H Mason 14. And then it's the same thing on Instagram. So at H Mason 14 on Twitter and Instagram, also check him out uh, on the radio on Atlanta sports X every day from 12 to three. He does a great job on the radio work. Please support him in any way you can. And and uh, we enjoyed our conversation with Hudson and, and here it is Hudson Mason, former quarterback for the Dogs. We are excited to be joined today by former Georgia quarterback Hudson Mason. Uh, Hudson is a 2015 grad of the University of Georgia. He was a quarterback there from 2010 to 2014. He started the latter half of the 2013 season and then had a Great season uh, in his senior campaign in 2014, setting and still holding the completion percentage record for a single season at UGA. After his career at UGA, he went on and had stints with the Washington Redskins, a short stint in the CFL and now is the co-host of a radio show out of Atlanta and also does studio work and analyst work for the ESPN family networks and is the eye in the sky, I guess as it was, for Ian Eagle and Dan Fouts, Uh, so still very involved in the football world. Uh, Hudson, we are very happy to have you. Welcome to the program. Yeah, thanks for having me, guys. Yeah, so we uh, want to have you on for for a lot of reasons. Number one, because I think in a lot of ways 2014 was such a compelling season and one I don't think that gets the attention it deserves from a fan's perspective. It's just a lot of interesting nuggets about that. But on the podcast, we're just interested in people's story uh, and their Georgia story. So with you, we kind of just want to start with your upbringing and with your time at Lasseter. I know you played at uh, Lasseter for Coach Lindsey, who's now the head coach at Troy. Yeah. So just if, if you could just start off by taking us through, I guess, your journey as a kid growing up in Georgia and, and playing ball at Lasseter.
2: Yeah. Uh, so, you know, it's funny growing up. I and my dream was always to play college basketball. My dad played college basketball. So basketball was always kind of my first love. And uh, it's funny. Middle school came around. I played football and basketball my whole life, but I hit a block in the road with football in middle school. They maybe play defense and play linebacker and all the hitting. Um, I was like, man, this ain't for me. I need a red jersey at practice or I'm not playing football. And so I got through that weird phase and got to high school and still played high school basketball and football. And it wasn't really until my junior year of high school that I thought that I had a legit shot at uh, playing football beyond high school. You know, I was brought up in a family that's from East Tennessee. And so there are the roots of Tennessee and the University of Tennessee are very thick in, in my family's blood. And, um, the funny story about me is that my uncle went to UT, a lot of UT grads. I actually grew up going to Tennessee football games and he had season tickets and, um, you know, and still to the day when I would go and, you know, when I was a starter at Georgia, when I played uh, a lot of my family, including him, uh, because they were, they were raised to hate Georgia and hate the red and black. He would come to my games and he would not wear Georgia stuff. He would wear, He would not wear Tennessee stuff but he would just stay neutral and wear like Lasseter Trojan stuff. And so I actually, my in-home visit in high school with Mark Rick and Mike Bobo and Stacey Searles, my uncle came over cause he's just a big part of my life and, and really influential. And so he came over for breakfast and he was sitting there at the table with all of us and his cell phone went off and it was Rocky top. And you want to talk about just an awkward moment when you're sitting there and you're getting recruited by Mark Rick and Mike Bobo and, you know, this, this guy, you know, this redneck from East Tennessee's cell phone goes off and it's, and it's rocky top. I never heard the end of that for all the years till I left when we played Tennessee, the week of playing Tennessee. You know, Bobo would always be like, you can't trust him. You know, you can't trust him. He's probably giving away our plays, our signals. So, you know, high school was a great time for me. It wasn't really until Chip Lindsey came over from Hoover, Alabama with Rush Proats in that historic program came to Lasseter to be the head coach. 2008, and it wasn't really until 2008, my junior year high school, uh, after my junior year, really that I started to get some college attention. Started to get some looks. My first offer was from the University of Iowa, which is a bit random. So really, the summer of going into my senior year, I wasn't the most highly recruited kid. I mean, almost three star kid. There were definitely more uh, highly touted quarterbacks in my class in the state of Georgia. Connor Shaw from South Carolina. You know, Blake Sims that went to Alabama. And I didn't really have a lot of the big offers. I had a lot of mid-majors, a couple Big Ten, Springfield in there, but no SEC, no ACC. Went through my senior year, had a great senior year, broke several state records, put up crazy big numbers. We went 12-1. and And I remember Georgia had kind of lightly recruited me. They asked me to come to a camp that summer, but they were taking Murray and Mettenberger in the class before me. So they, they didn't really have any room. I appreciated their honesty. And so... Really, I hadn't heard anything from Georgia in months. They weren't even on my radar. I remember coming out of science class one day after football season, sometime in the winter of '09, just months before signing day, I walk out of science class and Stacey Searles, the old offensive line coach for Georgia, was standing there. And I was so caught off guard. I'm like, what are you doing here? And he sat me down and he I still remember the science class to this day, where it was, the table. And he kind of went through this plan where, hey, you know, I think we're going to have room. I know we originally told you no. And a couple of weeks later, uh, Mark Rick called and offered me a scholarship. And it was a domino effect after that. And I think that's what I was probably missing in, in high school at that time was you, you. once you get that big offer, that first one, it's a domino effect. Then the rest are coming. And that's what happened for me. Um, and then eventually took my visits and, and really settled on Georgia.
0: So I want to flesh out your high school career a little bit because, Hudson, let's be honest here, brother. It it was nothing to sneeze at. For those who who don't know, Hudson's senior year, he was the Georgia Gatorade football player of the year. He threw for 4,560 yards, had 54 touchdowns. When he graduated high school, he left as the Georgia single season record holder with passing yards, touchdowns, and held two of the top single game pass performances in the history of the state. And some of those records stood for a while. I mean, actually, I think from a passing yards in a single season, you held two of the top three seasons in Georgia football history. And the second one, uh, you missed by, what, five yards your junior year? So you had quite a career. And I just think – it's not like Georgia is some small state that has has no football pedigree, and this is prior to the yeah. explosion of offenses, and, and notably the explosion of high school offenses when it comes to, to passing. And you yeah, talked correct. about Coach Lindsey and Coach Propes. For those who don't know, Coach Propes was the coach at Hoover High School in Alabama for a long time, legendary high school program, so noted that MTV at one time ran a reality show called Two a Days mm-hmm. on their program. Uh, and he's currently now in the state of Georgia, isn't that right, Hudson? Is he at Colkit? Is that where he is right now? Oh, he- was he got fired? Oh, I didn't know that. I didn't know that. Yeah. So, a um, little bit of a
2: uh, little turmoil, some problems down there. He got released, but uh, I think he's trying to get back into coaching.
0: Yeah. So noted coach and Coach Lindsay had coached with him prior yeah. to that, correct? Yeah. And yeah. Uh, and obviously noted offensive mind. What were the things that he brought in and did differently with y'all your junior and senior year than than what y'all were doing prior to that? Well,
2: I was running the option my first two years in high school. And, you know, I remember several times talking with my dad, you know, and because you start to you, if you want to play college ball, you got to start to kind of have a plan by your freshman years and even your sophomore year. So my sophomore year rolled around. We're still running the option. And, you know, we're like every other family. We're, we're thinking, should we move? Should we reclassify? Should we you know, relocate, put myself in a better situation to have success? And we weren't any good. And our coach got fired and they brought in Chip and it, it was a huge blessing. You know, Chip brought in this offense of mindset, and and from a philosophical standpoint, they're they're going to throw the ball, and that was 2008 in in the state of Georgia, where nobody was throwing the ball like we were, and I'm talking about teams were either running the pro I or the option, and so the the concept of throwing the ball 40, 50 times a game was like it was unheard of, and I think a lot of the reason we had a lot of success because we really weren't that talented. I mean, we had we had a left tackle go to NC State. We had a tight end, Phillip Lutzenkirk, and, and go to Auburn. But then my senior year, uh, me and one other player played college ball. So we didn't have a bunch of a bunch of college talent running around. I think what gave us a big competitive advantage is we were running a system offensively that nobody had seen before. They didn't know how to defend it. They didn't know how to defend up-tempo, go fast, wear you down. They didn't know how to defend, the spread the field out, and so – while we weren't the most talented, we really killed people with X's and O's and scheme. And uh, Chip was just, uh, you know, a great coach. I mean, a lot of the things that he taught me at the high school level, I still remember uh, to the college day. I remember I was actually thinking about this the other day. Uh, One of the things that stuck with me in high school uh, was when in doubt, find a check down, when in doubt, find a back. And he always taught, you know, when you get flushed out of the pocket and you're looking for somebody, a back usually is always open. You know, the when you get flush out of the pocket, the best quarterbacks keep their eyes downfield. And that's where you see Aaron Rodgers and Russell Wilson, all these guys. You know, a lot of people escape the run. And some of these quarterbacks, especially if you're not super mobile, if you escape with your eyes downfield ready to throw, you can kill teams with big plays. And so I always remember that. And it helped me out tremendously. A lot of, you know, when you throw for 55,000 yards or put up a bunch of numbers, the reality of it is, is you got to have guys that. Are special with the ball after they catch it. If you got a bunch of, you know, slow turtles and tortoises that just catch the ball and go down, your yards after contact aren't going to be that great. So I was blessed to have that. And um, a lot of that was just some of the, the teaching philosophy and coaching philosophy from trip.
0: So kind of bridging the gap from Lasseter to UGA, how was that helpful? Because it seemed almost a perfect transition for you, right? You, you learn this new offense at Lasseter, and it's about the same time that Coach Bobo and Coach Rick start to expand the Georgia offense and do a lot more spread concepts and are throwing the ball around the field a lot more. I mean, Aaron's numbers obviously were big in the four years that he ran under that offense. So how fortuitous was that, number one? And then two, how well prepared were you for those scenarios because of what you were able to do in high school?
2: College game is just so different than high school. I think kids are actually more prepared for college football nowadays than they were even when I came out. I think part of that is because football is now year-round, you get seven-on-seven, seven and kids are getting reps uh, all around the clock, the calendar, uh, and so they're getting better. I think kids from, high school, from a quarterback standpoint are taught more at a younger age from an X's and O's standpoint. When I came out of high school, I didn't know what an under or an overfront looked like. I couldn't get on a whiteboard and draw up my favorite pass concept versus quarters. You know, So these are all the things that when you get to college, you learn, and people aren't just teaching you, and you, you can't just know to be good. You can't just know – what you do you have to know what everybody does you got to know where the receiver lines up what his job is you know you got to be able to talk protections and tell the right tackle that if this guy blitzes through the a gap you have to communicate every position and then that's just the offensive side of the ball the defensive side of the ball so I didn't know any of that in high school and so when I got to college there was not only the learning curve of that but then the skill set of players increases substantially and the speed of the game increases and so while you're used to Billy Bob, who is uh, a good high school player but has no chance of playing college level, you get to you get to college, and then all of a sudden Alec Ogletree is six three two thirty five, and he can run a four three. You know you can't be late throwing that ball across the middle. So, you know somebody asked me at work today how long it took me before you always hear the term the light bulb went off, or the, you know the game slowed down is another term. Uh, it took me. It really slowed down for me from a communication standpoint and then also seeing the game and and playing from a reactionary standpoint, not not thinking so much was my second spring at Georgia. And so that's about a year and a half to two years. You go through the install of camp and season. It, It took me about two years to get to the point in the playbook. And that's the other thing is you get to college and. You know, your your playbook in high school is there and it and it goes to that and you gotta know so much, especially a Mark Rick and Bobo system, which was very reliant on the quarterback handling so much. You know, now the game is played more out of shotgun. And uh, I didn't ever take a snap under center in high school. I mean it was it was a sin to get under center in, in high school in that spread concept. And so uh, you know, when you get to college and eighty-five percent of our plays, you know, you're taking us a snap under center, you literally are learning the mechanics of how do I put my hands under center and just take a snap for the first time, let alone how do I turn my head and show a play action fake and then whip it around. And then in, in, in eight tenths of a second, I got to make a decision based on what the safety did or a linebacker did. So that, those are some of the things that people don't ever understand why it takes so long for, you know, in, incoming freshmen at the quarterback position to really hit a stride.
1: So when you get to UGA, realistically with Aaron there, he's a redshirt freshman. There's no class separation at that point with you being a true freshman. Play your freshman year in a couple of games. You play your sophomore year in a couple of games. And from the outside, I I remember at that point in time, there was rumblings of you talking about, well, not maybe you talking about transferring, but there were rumblings to the fans hearing that you might transfer. In this current generation, you know you hear kids transferring with the transfer portal, transferring all the time. So if you don't mind speaking on it, how serious were those thoughts in your head about you possibly transferring before your redshirt year in 2012? And what do you currently think about the current landscape in college football, which really, for lack of a better term, has turned into free agency with the transfer portal?
2: Yeah, it has. I mean, you know, in my case, it was totally different than what it is now. You know, I was going to transfer. I remember walking in after 2011, we lost to uh, Michigan State in the Outback Bowl. And I remember, you know, a couple of weeks later, I walked into Coach Rick's office and I was like, man, I'm out of here. I mean, I, I had my decision was predetermined. I mean, I knew I was like, "Look, Aaron has entrenched himself as the starter and rightfully so. And I was like, I, you know, it just doesn't make sense for me to stay here. So I walked into his office, asked to meet with him and I was going to tell him I was leaving before I could get it out. He knew I was there. And Coach was like, you know, we like you. We want you to stay. what if we offered you a red shirt? And I was like, mm, you know. Uh, you know, I'll think about it. So I thought about it and obviously I decided to stay. But, you know, would I have done it differently or do I think it would have played out the same way given the modern landscape of college football with a transfer portal? I don't think so. I, I do not blame kids at the quarterback position for transferring. I know people roll their eyes and they say all oh, those are millennials and they're afraid of competition and they're trying to just, they won't embrace difficulty and, and blah, blah, blah. I see it a little differently. I think you've got a small window to take advantage in life of, you know, playing the game. And I think that's, that's the one thing I look back, you know, one season goes by so quick, 2014 as a starter went by so quick. And I think at the end of it, you just go, man, I just, that was fun. You know, I mean, I I wish I would have been able to do this two seasons or three seasons. And, you know, I think that was the part that I look back and I was like, if there was one, I wouldn't say regret, but if there's one thing I maybe uh, I tell kids all the time now, whether they're in high school or college as they get so enamored with playing at the big sec and the ACC and the power five schools. And I'm like, yeah, guys, just go play. Like at the end of it, you won't be looking back being like, man, I I love sitting on the sideline for five years at, at Florida. No, you'll, you'll be like, man, I had a ball playing two years, three years at Furman, or, you know, maybe it's a smaller, any smaller, like, go play. Cause though that's the part you love. And so that's the part that I kind of missed, and, and now with the transfer portal, it's obviously made it easier for kids to transfer and gain immediate eligibility and stuff like that. So it's different, man. And and the other thing people forget is and I I faced this when I you know was signed with the Redskins and then caught is most NFL experts, most NFL general managers will not, from a quarterback standpoint, even consider drafting you or even signing you in free agency unless you have a minimum of two years on your belt. They just Bill Polian, longtime NFL general manager, my general manager of the Redskins, when he cut me, he was like, "Look, Hudson, you know, it, it, we have a we have a rule of thumb here. We don't draft quarterbacks unless they have a minimum of like 30 starts. Well, you know, that's that's two three years right there. So I was already behind the eight ball."
1: So we obviously want to talk about the 14 season a little bit, but uh, obviously Aaron goes down in the Kentucky game, tears his ACL. I believe that was senior night for his year. How important was it for the 14 season for you just to get that start against Georgia Tech, which by the way, amazing game, one of our all time favorite games. And also I can't remember the bowl game, but it was against Nebraska. Yeah, it was, uh- How important was that for you and your development going into the 14 season, those last couple of starts?
2: It was big. I mean, because I was, you know, I I had a lot of practice reps. I didn't have many game reps and there is a difference. You know, the lights a little brighter, more people watching, you know, so those game reps, you can't put a price tag on. And I didn't have a lot of those, you know, it, it stunk that it came the way it came for Aaron that he had to go out like that. It's funny. I was sitting there on the sideline and you could tell something was wrong with Aaron and he was so durable, man. He took so many shots and I'm on the headset and Aaron's limping and it lingered for a couple of plays and they told me, Hey, you're, you know, you're going in. And, uh, so I grab my helmet and I go to run in and Aaron waves me off. And so I get out about to about the hash and I turn around, and I walk back out and, you know, so there was like two or three plays in a row where they the, the coaches are like, go get them. And Aaron's like, no, stay over there. <laughs> like, like all right, can you guys maybe communicate this? Because, you know, like, <laughs> this is, like, well, you guys go get them and then I'll go out there. But, uh, yeah, it just speaks to how tough he was, man. He he was uh, like Brett Favre. You know, you just you, you had to drag his dead body off the field for him to miss a snap. So those were valuable. You know, the Georgia Tech game, you know, you guys, thank God we won that because that was about as unideal of a first start as you could ever have for a quarterback in, in college football. That first half was pretty bad. Tech, I lost to Tech one time in my career. That's plenty of times. That's that's one too many. Glad we got the first one. but uh, And then the belt bowl. You got an opportunity to win the game late uh, down there near the red zone and we, we, we weren't made, able to make it happen. So it definitely gave me some valuable experience
0: heading into my senior year. So we want to talk about 14 a little bit for a couple reasons. One, just from a results perspective, if there are seasons, I would say in the past 20 and you look back at one and go, man. If three or four plays had gone differently, what would that season have looked like? And 14, maybe more than any, was that game in Columbia, which was just a bizarre game in so many ways. And then obviously the Georgia Tech game with the squib kick and the last second prayer field goal. I mean, just. Weird. And then I also think, too, what gets discounted in that season is what the team dealt with as a whole with Todd's suspension. And then it seemed like that suspension would probably only last two games. And then late the Thursday night before the Florida game, it comes out well. The suspension is going to be extended to two games. That was after you guys come off two big emotional wins on the road in Columbia against Missouri and then on the road against Arkansas going into that Florida game with a lot of juice, and a lot of momentum after you know, nationally, I feel like a lot of people had counted y'all out after Todd's suspension. Um, so could you could just speak on that season, just from, I guess, what it meant to you from a playing perspective, but also, kind of what your thoughts are on it and, and any insights you could give us on that year.
2: Yeah, man. I mean, if I'm being dead honest, I look back on 2014 as a as an underachieving year. You know, I mean, I think you look at you look around the landscape of the SEC that year, and we were by far and away the best team. I mean, there was no doubt about it. And Missouri ended up winning that the conference that year. And with all due respect, they just they weren't as good of a team. I don't you know, they I don't even think they were the second best team in the conference behind uh, South Carolina. But, you know, you're exactly right. I mean, so many so many weird things happened that year uh, from the South Carolina game to Georgia Tech. And you're sitting there and, and at the end of the season, you're sitting there looking at it like, man, there was no reason for us at the worst to be 11 and two and playing in the orange ball. And it's funny, you know, 10 and three to Georgia people is average. It's mundane. Um, I mean, let's be real. Like that's, that's why Mark Rick got fired because people got tired of him winning 10 games, 10 games at Iowa or other places is considered a successful season. I think in 2014, if my memory serves me correctly, we finished like number eight or seven in the country. A lot of people get job promotions and get paid more after that at Georgia. You know, so my point is, is that given how down the SEC East was that year, we should have won the East and we underachieved. And for whatever reasons, I don't know, we'll, you know, for, who knows? We don't give the ball to Todd Gurley on the two-yard line. We get, I get an intentional grounding uh, the next play. We miss a chip shot field goal. I mean, all these things that happen in Columbia. And then you know, against Georgia Tech, we score on a two-minute drive with 12 seconds left, and we decide to squid kick it when our kickoff team has never given up a touchdown all year. They're one of the best kickoff teams in college football. Why do we squid kick it? You know, and then Harrison Butker, obviously a great field goal kicker, still kicking in the NFL, nails a 53 yarder by the hair on his chin. So I don't know, man. I've thought of that several times, you know, how much better that season could have been if a couple things had gone our way. And I think that's the frustration of sometimes what you get when And I'm talking to me personally, when you only get one opportunity, you know, when you're only playing one year, those are some of the the memories, uh, good or bad, that you have to deal with the rest of your life. You get one shot. And I wish that one shot would have turned out a little bit more like DJ Shockley's one shot than it, than it did in 2014. But you know, it is what it is. How much did the Todd Gurley thing affect us? I didn't really think it affected us much, man. I really don't. I mean, we had Todd Gurley against South Carolina and we still didn't win. And if we had won that game, we would have been playing in the SEC Championship game. So people forget. I mean, we had Nick Chubb and Sony Michelle behind Todd. I mean, we were so loaded. So... Uh, those guys did a pretty good job of picking up where he left off. So it just is what it is. And it, it is frustrating, I think, as a player to put in all the hard work in the offseason, especially the Georgia Tech one. You know, man, that, that was a coaching decision. You know, why do you squib kick it? You know, South Carolina, I think if you do it differently, you give the ball to Todd Gurley. So, you know, you, you as an athlete try to put yourself in a – and the coaches do too. They work really hard. But you as a player, you try to put yourself in a position, do mat drills and off-season workouts and sweating. And and then, you know, to lose a game because of just a dumb call or a dumb decision is – it's part of it. It happens every single day. It's just, it, it does stink.
0: So I'm really glad that you you brought up DJ Shockley and I'll tell you why. This is one of the reasons we wanted to have you on the program is that, and this may not matter to you. L- legacy may not be something that, that weighs on your matters, but it matters to me and boss. So we wanted to talk to you about it. If you look at things from a legacy perspective, DJ is beloved and he should be. Won, a, won an SEC title, had a great year. But if you look at it down the board, and I don't just mean the numbers of the one year each of you got to play, but it, just the whole scenario, right? You both follow four-year entrenched starters who had record-breaking careers. You both honorably Wait for your opportunity to play. You honor the University of Georgia and stay and play and have good years. And your numbers, Hudson. I don't know if you ever looked at them. They're almost identical for the two years that y'all played. About same amount of yards, uh, same amount of touchdowns, same amount of interceptions. Both teams finished ten and three overall. Both teams finished six and two in the SEC. It is our opinion that legacy wise, you should be remembered for what you gave to the university and for for how well you played that year and for staying. And as Coach Rick's uh, motto was during his time, they're finishing the drill, right? So if, if you could just speak on that, if that's ever a comparison that that you've thought about or if anybody's ever brought that up to you, we just found that very compelling and interesting.
2: Yeah, I haven't. I've never heard that. So that's uh, the first time I've heard that. That is really interesting. I would say, you know, the biggest difference is one guy played in the SEC championship and one won one and the other didn't. That's funny that they went 10 and 3 and, and went to the SEC championship game. I didn't know that. I didn't even know that his numbers were pretty similar to mine. My senior year, man, we quickly figured out that we weren't going to be a team that was built off throwing the ball. Did that stink? For me, it stunk in the sense that your legacy is, remembered based off two things uh, how you produce and then the overall win loss record. And so I think my legacy would be different if we had played in the sec championship game i think my legacy would be different i think the team's legacy of 2014 would be different if we would have had just one more win uh, 11 wins is totally different and playing in a bcs orange bowl game is totally different than playing than being 10 and 3 and it sounds crazy that it's just one game but it really is playing on a new year's day bowl game in the orange bowl you remember totally different than just playing in the Belt oh. bowl uh in in having one last loss so and then there's the stats part of it the, the stats part kind of used to eat me up but I think it ate me up at the beginning of the season because you feel a little bit of the pressure of I've got one year right I, I'm trying to make the most of it also balancing with that with you want to win and the greatest exposure and the greatest legacy is playing on the biggest stages the more you win the bigger the stage you get to play on I mean we, we had a guy in Todd Gurley that was halfway through the season being talked about for the Heisman. So there was no doubt. And we didn't have Malcolm Mitchell that year, our best receiver. I'm not making excuses. I'm just saying that there's a difference between excuse and a fact. And the fact is, is that we weren't just a team. We were killing people running the football. And your job is always to do what you're good at. And we were good at running the football. And of took away from us throwing the football. So I never really got hung up on the stats later in the season. I kind of learned to just let it go. It was more about, man, I've got one year. Uh, I want to play in the SEC championship game. I want to represent the East and I want to play on a big stage come December. And I think that's the part that eats you up a little bit where I think I would rather be eight and five and not have the close losses and be 10 and three with an overall, but like those, those misses that that game at at South Carolina, those games at Georgia Tech, when I find myself kind of sit back and think about it, that's what eats you up the most because it's one small decision here. It's one small minute decision to do something differently that could have changed your legacy and the team's legacy for years to come. So I'm not I've never been a guy that's gotten too I think people are lying when they don't when they tell you oh I don't care what people think about me. We all care what people think about us to an extent. We want people to think positive things and think good things about us, but I'm not the type of guy who is living and dying off the approval of man. Um, and so, you know, I think that gives me a lot of peace that while you can, things don't go your way and you can be really realistic about things not going your right way. I don't lay my head down on the pillow every night wondering what is somebody else out there thinking of me, if that makes sense.
0: Well, your answer kind of confirms what we thought. And that's you talking that about doing what was best for the team. And I think that's what, should be the definition and legacy of your career is that you always did what was best for your team and for the University of Georgia. I just think that that's something that should be remembered and be appreciated. And I, I think that, that is, that's true of the season. I mean, you, you look at the numbers from the season, you still have 20, 21 touchdown passes and only four turnovers, right? So you're, you're doing what was required to make the offense churn and make the offense work. Anyways, I it's Th- that answer was, was interesting. It kind of confirmed some of the things that we thought. So, well, we, we want to talk to you a little bit too about your career after the university of Georgia had brief playing stints uh, with the Redskins and with, in, in the CFL, I, actually interesting, I guess, symbiosis between you and myself. I actually worked in PR for the Redskins for a couple oh, years. Really? To, yeah, before before you got there. But so I'm familiar with that organization and kind of how, how things are within that building. And that's a whole nother podcast and a whole nother conversation, brother. But t- can you tell us a little bit about that to start and then transition into how you got into broadcasting? If that was something that was a passion or desire for you or if some opportunities presented themselves and you just leapt at them?
2: Yeah. Um. So NFL to CFL, two totally different experiences for me. One I loved, one I didn't a whole lot. The NFL I loved. It was so cool getting to the NFL and being around the best in the business. And, and it was, you know, you're coming from college where you are, you're babysat. You really are as a student athlete. You're told where to be, when to be there. Uh, if you're not, you're you're reprimanded. You're, you know, you, you're just babysat. And so I think by the time you leave at 22 years old, you're kind of tired of that. You want a little bit more freedom. When you get to the NFL, it's totally the other end of the spectrum. It's like, look, you produce, you be productive, Uh, We're not going to babysit you, and if not, we'll go find somebody else. So I actually appreciated that, and I loved it. And I also loved just being around ball. I loved being around – you know, I got to the Redskins. It was RG3, Kirk Cousins, Colt McCoy. Being around the best, learning new things, really, really enjoyed it. I was pretty eaten up when I got cut, mainly because I thought I was in a pretty good situation with the Redskins because most don't keep three on the active roster. And I was the fourth quarterback in training camp. As a young guy, I thought – my realistic goal was to make a uh, P squad, make practice squad. And it just didn't work out that way. They decided to keep three on the active roster, which is super rare. And, you know, you get cut. And so, you know, for me, there wasn't a lot of opportunity and there wasn't through my agent going to be a lot of opportunity uh, elsewhere in the NFL. So if I really wanted to keep playing, which I did, it was going to have to be through the CFL. So I go to the CFL, uh, end up playing there for a couple of years with the uh, Saskatchewan Rough Riders and Calgary Stampeders. I was totally different, man. I, you know, I had just gotten married, and and so my wife and I were doing the long distance thing. You're not making great money. Anybody that's lived in Canada knows that the uh, Uncle Sam up there is going to take about fifty percent of it, and then on top of that, well, not fifty percent, it's about you know forty percent. Then on top of that, currency exchange rate, you're losing even more money if you live back in the United States. So I was losing about fifty percent of my paycheck, and I was only making, I think, if my active contract was like uh, fifty two pre tax. I mean, you're clearing you know pennies wasn't enough to live off year round, but that wasn't as much of the big deal to me uh, and the deciding factor as much as I just didn't really fall in love with the game. I remember when I got to, to the CFL, my first meeting with my offensive coordinator, of the Rough Riders, he was like, take everything you've learned in American football and forget it. And I was, I was like, man, that's deep. That, I was like, yeah, right. And i never like for two years, I was still trying to operate off of things I learned in American football, 11 on 11. CFL's 12-man football. They add an extra receiver and extra DB. It changes everything. It feel, Adding one extra guy on the field feels like there's a 1,000 extra people on there. The field's longer. It's wider. It's just different. I never really embraced it. And so after three years, I tried to come back to the United States and play in one of these developmental leagues. I wish the XFL or the you know AAF was around. When I was around, that would have been a great league. Played in it. Didn't get picked up. I hung up the cleats, and I, and I was at peace with it being done then becomes the transition to the next chapter of life. And, and this is really where I struggled mightily. I, re, I really did. I know a lot of guys do, especially the guys that don't make enough money where you can just figure it out as you go. You got to go get a job. You got to start provide, providing also simultaneously trying to figure out, well, what do I want to do for the next 30 years of my life? Um, you're never really prepared that well for that. And it's not, not necessarily George's fault or anybody else's fault. It's just, you don't know what you want to do until you're almost kind of thrown into the fire to figure it out. And that's where I was after football season ended. Um, I worked business sales, selling oil just to make a paycheck. And I was miserable and trying to figure out at the same time, what makes me tick? What do I want to do? I knew I wanted to stay in sports, but it was a low time for my life because I think it was a bit of kind of this internal identity crisis going on where you're always seeing yourself as a football player and a quarterback. And then bam, all of a sudden that comes to an end. And when the praise stops and the pat on the back stops, and it's just you, and, you know, your loved ones around you, uh, I think you probably realize that you were a little bit more dependent on that praise. And then, you you know, you just learn you, you learn a lot of things about yourself. Looking back on it, it was great. It was a character developmental time for me, but it was a tough time. And how I got into the broadcasting world was I had gotten an opportunity to start calling games in the booth uh, digitally with ESPN, ESPN3. And I loved it. And I was doing that on the weekends and still doing my business sales job during the week. But I hated the business sales thing. I was approached about doing a radio show with Dickie Broadcasting, 680 The Fan, here in Atlanta. And they asked me if I'd be interested. it was funny because when they first approached me, I was like – I told them no, actually. I was like, look, I'm a football junkie. I don't want to talk baseball. I don't want to talk NBA. And they – kind of approached me again about it. And after thinking about it and talking with some other guys in the industry, like Brock Heward, who calls games for ESPN that also does a radio show, radio show in Seattle. I, I, they talked some sense into me and was like, look, the mechanics of radio and TV that carry over, I think it'd be great for you to get reps. And I decided to go do it. And I'm so happy I did it. I actually enjoy doing radio way more than I ever thought I would. I enjoyed covering baseball and NBA and the big sports way more than I thought I would. And, and I've been able to kind of grow Uh, calling games in the booth. This past year, I called four games on SEC Network. I was supposed to do the Florida spring game this year, April 18th, but obviously because of the pandemic, that's canceled. So, you know, my goal is to, uh, as sooner than later, maybe ideally even as soon as this fall, to be calling a full package of games with SEC Network or, you know, some some form of fashion for college football. I love being in the booth. It's about as close as you can get to coaching without coaching. Being a broadcaster, I mean, you've got the film prep. You're meeting with teams. I love going – I love being on college campuses. That's probably an underrated element that I never thought I would. I I love college football in America, you know, whether it's Muncie, Indiana at Ball State or it's Kalamazoo, Western Michigan. I mean, I just love being on campus in the fall on Saturdays and feeling that kind of school pride all across the country. And I think that's what's rare and so unique about college football, specifically in the South.
0: So we want to close with you today, Hutz, with our Smart 16. It's kind of our rapid fire questions to honor Coach Smart.
2: Is that a play on Kirby Smart?
0: Yep, yep. Coach, Coach Smart and the number that he wore wore while he was there. So we would try to come up with, with, with 16 quick hitters that, that people could do. So, so we're going to start with what's your middle name? Uh, Taylor. Your funniest teammate. Funniest teammate, man.
2: Uh, Blake Tibbs, former wide receiver from
0: Jordan. Yeah, man. Still follow him on Snapchat. Yeah, still there's a reason why. Funny guy. How about the fav- your favorite game you ever played in? Favorite game.
2: I would say probably uh my first game of my senior year in Athens against Clemson. They came in top ten. We were top ten. Really, really cool night. Electric moment. First, you know, big start at home for me. Uh, that was that was a good one.
1: What about your favorite rivalry?
2: Georgia, Florida. I feel like a little that's a little cliche. I really enjoyed Auburn. Georgia Auburn to me was cool. A lot of the kids that played at Auburn were also from the state of Georgia. My best friend in high school, Philip Lutzenkirk, and Kirk, played at Auburn, so I just enjoyed that rivalry.
0: What is your favorite away stadium in the Southeastern Conference?
2: I love Neyland Stadium, man. I think uh, it, it's starting to get back to where it was in the 90s and early 2000s there. That plays 100,000 fans. Um, is uh, is super electric. I know you're not supposed to say this as a Georgia fan. I actually like the song Rocky Top. I think it's catchy. I think it's cliche. I know a lot of people think it sucks and and they can pound me for it and probably will. But... Uh, yeah, like they would play it all week leading up to there, but you know, because you had to get used to hearing it. And I always enjoyed it. I was like, man, like, whatever. I know you're not supposed to say it as a Georgia fan, but I always thought it was a cool theme
1: song. What's the loudest game you ever played in?
2: Well, I would say probably oh, played in or uh, been a part of. There's, there's two different things. Well, either one. I would say LSU 2000, what was that? 12, Mettenberger came back home. And uh, played, I think college game day was there that day. Uh, we won like 44 to 41 last second. Uh, that was, I think that was a 330 game. That was pretty cool, pretty wild.
0: All right, you get to choose the headline act at the Georgia Theater. Who do you choose?
2: Wow. Man, I love Luke Combs. Uh, I like, I'm a big kind of classic rock, 70s guys. You know, but uh, I'm on a really strong Luke Combs kick right now. I think he's super talented. So I, I would go Luke Combs. I like a lot of the stuff that he's putting out right now.
0: He's been doing a lot of the uh, pandemic, like Facebook yeah. Live stuff. Yeah. And he did If you haven't seen it, he did this cover, Tracy Chapman's Fast Car. It's fantastic. Oh, no, I haven't. Uh-uh. Yeah, you got you got to check that out. it out. It's real good.
1: If you get to tailgate at the world's largest outdoor cocktail party, what's the cocktail you're mixing?
2: Yeah. <laughs> Cocktail I'm mixing, you know I don't, you know I'm more of a guy that'll, uh, I'm not a beer guy. I might have a glass of wine. I know uh, that's probably fruity. That's probably not manly. Um,
0: there's there, there's God, no yeah. judgment here. Yeah, none at all. <laughs> the fruit the fruitier the better for me. The boss of, boss <laughs> will tell you. Right. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Probably a glass of red wine would be my thing. All right, if you're back in Athens for one meal, what is, the, what is the place you have to go? What's your favorite place to eat in Athens?
2: Classic. Oh, man. <sighs> Butt Hut is a barbecue joint that I know was there. I don't know. They're still there. When I left, they relocated right there near the loop. And it's a barbecue joint. Not sure if they're there. So if you love barbecue, that's a place that uh, is phenomenal. I'd probably go Butt Hut. What were your game day superstitions? No superstitions, man. I don't believe in that. I didn't have any we had some coaches who were super super superstitious, you know, they would try to do some small
0: things here and there and it was funny, but I, I don't know, I never really I never really got into that. One of one of my favorite football player quotes on superstitions is Julian Edelman, they asked Edelman, are you superstitious? He said, "Well, I'm not superstitious, but I'm a little stitious." Yeah. <laughs> right, yeah, yeah right. Uh, so what is your favorite Sanford Stadium pregame tradition, whether it's the lone trumpeteer, whether mm-hmm. it is the marching band spelling out Georgia on the field, Larry Munson coming yeah. over the loudspeakers to bring the dogs in? What's your favorite?
2: Oh, man, this is a close one. I'm going to go neck and neck. I can't pick one. It's like picking your favorite child um, between the G-Day walk or, you know, the G-Walk or uh, my God, whatever they call it.
0: <laughs> the dog walk, the dog walk.
2: Goodness gracious, uh, the dog walk. The opening song of Bab Riley, The Who. Uh, do they still play that? Yeah, they do. Okay, hopefully so. That that is one of my. I feel like that's a pretty low key, underrated tradition that nobody ever talks about. When Bab Riley comes on, and they play that, that sends chills down my back. I, that's how I know it's it's you know it's Saturday in Athens.
1: Black jerseys, yes or no?
2: I'd be for them. I'm not as against them. You talk about superstitious people, you know, always remember how we got pounced by, uh, what was it, Alabama? Uh, You know, Um, I know Georgia fans are very traditional. They want to see the silver britches. They want to see the red jerseys. And it sure doesn't help when you play in new uniforms like we did against Boise and you get beat. I think if you win, then people are like, yeah, bring them more. Um, I just – I think some of that stuff does matter with recruiting. So I think the more, you know, if you do it once, you don't want to overdo it, but once a year, I think that stuff's pretty cool.
0: What is the loss you're still not over?
2: Georgia Tech, 2014. You don't, I mean, I live in the state of Georgia. I'm in Atlanta. You don't, <laughs> you know, the only way to, to get away from that would be to move to Anchorage, Alaska, you know, where nobody knows who you are. But yeah, I mean, uh, I've never been so high and so low within a span of like five minutes in my life.
1: What's your order at the varsity?
2: I am a chili dog, chili dog guy. I'll go two chili dogs, regular fries and a Coke, and then get the, uh, the orange slush to go. I'll tell you a funny story about that real quick. So my, my father-in-law loves the varsity and my brother-in-law comes down from Boston a year ago for a wedding. He's staying at our house and we, uh, we were down in Atlanta for the wedding. And after the the ceremony, we had this awkward time of about three hours to kill before the reception. And we were in Atlanta. And so my father-in-law and I were like, let's take my brother-in-law to the varsity. He had never been, didn't even know it. So we take him in there. And I when I walk him in there, I'm like, okay, Griff, look, so you gotta know what you got. You you gotta know what you're gonna order before you walk up there. You can't go up there and go, uh, because they'll kill you. So we stand back at the back and he figures out what he wants, and uh, <laughs> he gets up, he gets up to the line, and they go, What do you have? What do you have? And he gets nervous, right, because it's it's very intense. I mean, these, these women are not playing around. Like, let's go. Let's crank it through. I guess he gets, like, nervous, and he just goes – he melts. He just freezes up. He's like, uh, curly fries. And I'm like, oh, my gosh. And the lady looks at him, and she oh, – dude, I swear she was about to come up. Sir, oh, curly fries? And I looked at it and I'm like, we stood back here for 30 minutes in disgust. Like, Where do you put curly fries on the menu? And he's like sweating. He's like sweating. And so we, I, I was so embarrassed. I was like, we'll come back. So we went to the back of the line again. And he was blood <laughs> red. My father and I were just. He was like, dude, I don't know what happened. I just blacked out. Like I got so nervous and just yelled out, curly fries.
0: So, oh, that is that's an all timer. Yeah. That, that's an all timer. I love that. Oh, that's so funny. Yeah. So I've told this story <laughs> numerous times, but I'll tell it again because it's it's the God's honest truth. When I fly, I purposely f- try to fly through Atlanta airport because that way I can go to Terminal C and get me a couple chili dogs yeah. and an FO before I hit the next flight. Yeah. I'm telling you, man, it's the best. Oh, that's fantastic. <laughs> um, all right. There ought to be a constitutional amendment outlining noon kickoffs. Yes or no?
2: <laughs> yeah, absolutely, man. Oh man, there's nothing worse than playing um,
0: in Columbia, Missouri
2: on Central Time on a noon kickoff. That is a that, that is about a six fifteen a.m. wake up call, <laughs> and it is not even just about waking up. It's the fact that you have to eat at you know seven a.m. and then by the time kickoff starts, you're like, dude, I'm hungry again. Like I just went through a warm up, and it's everything about noon kickoffs are is awful.
1: College football playoff expand to eight teams or find how it is. Oh boy,
2: I've always been for expansion. I think that's where it's going to go. Um, you know, uh, the the downside of it is is the unintended consequences of expanding are there'll, there'll always be a team left out, right? So. The, the theory and the argument that, well, you know, there's this team like Georgia the past couple of years where they would have been in if we would expand it. Even if you expanded to eight, there's going to be a team that you're like, let's expand more, more, more. But I think because of revenue and generating and I look at the NFL playoffs and I just want more good football. People don't think that, you know, uh, that expanding will lead to good football because you'll get, a you know, a, an 18 versus a one seed. I, I'm just – you know, maybe you will, maybe you'll get the blowout. And if you do great, that's what people are expecting, but worst case scenario or best case scenario, you don't, you get an upset. I think, uh, I would be uh, for expanding it.
0: All right, Hudson, you're off the hot seat. That's, that's the smart 16. And I, I got to tell you, uh, you, you provided good. us with a, a hall of fame, smart 16 answer. So I don't, I don't, I don't think that was going to be top brother. Well, well, hey Hudson, right, thank you so much for joining us. We certainly appreciate the time. Uh, I hope you know that, but the blog, the Dogs Podcast, certainly thanks that you are a damn good dog and, and thanks you for everything that, that you gave yeah, to the university. So, guys, make sure and follow Hudson on all the socials on Twitter, on Instagram. Uh, make sure and listen to him uh, in the afternoons on cheap seats, twelve to three, right, Hudson, every day. Yeah,
2: twelve to three, Atlanta Sports X. Yeah, we got Atlanta Sports X app that you can download
0: for free. So, right. listening. All right, we'll check him out. We will be we'll be following you and rooting for you, man. Thanks so much, Hudson. Thanks, guys. That ties up our interview with Hudson Mason. Again, big thanks to Hudson for coming on the show. Boss, what were your thoughts of our conversation with him?
1: If you don't listen to any part of this interview, I hope that you listen to the varsity story because if nothing else, that was just a class story. That was one of the best stories we've had so far, but tying it back into everything UGA, just a damn good dog. He stuck around when he realistically didn't have to. I mean, he had options could have gone to other schools and played and he chose to stay. And like, and the conversation we had he was part of the last generation of players before the transfer portal and and he actually said he's not sure if it really would if the transfer portal was around if it really would have made a difference for him if he would have left or not so but he doesn't begrudge players you know now that do leave because you have such a finite window of that I thought that's a very interesting take which to be truthfully honest I I agree with him you know you have four to five years in college to to play sports and to be part of a team, you know, unless you get a medical red shirt, you know, which hopefully no one does, but it's just, you have such a finite window to be part of that part of the team, part of that brotherhood. And we should not begrudge these kids. And let's be honest, they're kids to make the most of their situation. You know, we look at it from a fan's perspective and sometimes, and our emotions get involved and it. We take it to an extreme level. We meaning fans, and it sometimes is rather disgusting. But Hudson, you know, has a very interesting perspective on it as being firsthand. And but I really enjoyed the conversation we had with Hudson. Like I said, damn good dog. His insight into the 2014 season. No excuses about the girly suspension at all. You know, very candid. You know, we had Nick Chubb and Sonny Michelle. You know, very candid about that. It's not like losing losing Todd destroyed the locker room, destroyed the team, still very talented team. He flat out said, you know, we had Todd Gurley against South Carolina and we still lost. So, but he did, he was very poignant and I found it very interesting. He had no qualms about saying that a couple coaching decisions in that season were kind of questionable. So I did love the fact that he was very candid with his answers and very, had no problem really speaking his mind, which, you know, with some players, you know, they very, they walk that company line for so long, you know, that they never really get out of it, but he was very candid and I enjoyed that. So it was a great conversation and I really loved talking to him. Yeah.
0: I, the conversation for me just affirmed what I had always thought from observing him from afar and just seems like a high character individual. Right. I and mean, I think you have to be to be as loyal as he was and and stay and and wait his turn to play because obviously he had plenty of talent obviously he could have played I thought the most interesting thing that he told us was that how everything affected his professional journey so that the GM for the Redskins told him while he was in camp with the Redskins that you know look Hudson, we don't we generally don't even look at quarterbacks that don't have x amount of starts in college in a way he almost got penalized for his loyalty because he didn't have those starts say he had gone somewhere else to kind of pivot off of that I also thought it was interesting how he said you know if he was giving advice to other young kids go play you know if you get the opportunity to go somewhere and play go play Um, you know don't go sit on the bench for four years at the University of Alabama because that's your window and what you'll look back on and what you'll talk about when you get older is Man, I loved to play it. Man, I enjoyed it. And, you know, we're both ex-athletes. I think we would say the same thing. I mean, it, th- that's what you you think. You go, man, I wish I had one more game or I wish I had one more season or I wish I could just keep going. So I thought that was great. I thought he was a, just a great guest. Like you said, very open, very honest. And yeah, that varsity story is an all-timer, just a world-class story. That is in the Smart 16 Hall of Fame, and I don't know how anybody's going to dislodge that. So that was fantastic. Love, love Hudson. Damn good dog for sure. And make sure you guys support him and follow him in any way you can. H Mason 14 on Twitter and Instagram, and make sure and check him out on his radio show, The Cheap Seats on Atlanta Sports X each day. Uh, just, just, just support him in any way you can because, like we said, just a just a damn good dog, and we're certainly appreciative of Hudson coming on the show. So go dogs, them. Go dogs. George is better now.